This is Dr. Jim Cox, and this is November the 13th, 2023. Tonight we're taking a look at chapter 15 of Ron Rhodes' book, Basic Bible Prophecy. We're looking at where these prophetic events occur at, and we are doing some review over what we've talked about in previous chapters, but review is good. That helps us to remember what's going on. And at the beginning, uh, I'd like to say some more words about talking about the Hamas and Israeli war that's going on in the Mideast. And we know from what the, what the scriptures tell us that in the last days there will be a focus on the Middle East. In fact, we know that the focus will be upon Israel, and that's what we're seeing today. And it reminds me of a verse in Zechariah 12. Let's see if I can get it up here. Hold on. I got my thing open. I got my tablet open here, so I forgot to go to the passage. Here we go. Zechariah 12 says, and I'm sure it's a passage you've heard, but it says, the oracle of the word of the Lord, I'm sorry, at verse 1, concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. That day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. And it goes on here. So we see in the end times there's going to be, there's going to be a focus on the Mideast. And, and more particularly a focus on Israel. So the question comes up is the war that we're seeing in the Mideast, is that prophetic? And uh, my answer is yes and no. When we see the war in the Middle East, there's some controversies we talked about, about the Psalm 83 war. And <clears throat> I should say before we go any further that last time we spent some time laying out some of the scriptures that shows that Israel has a special relationship with God. In fact, twice in the scripture, I found, I, I knew that in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 4, it said that Israel was the apple of his eye. But then I discovered another verse that I, I had not looked at before, Deuteronomy 32, 9 and 10. And it says, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. So here we see the records of Jacob, which is Israel, as the apple of his eye. We also saw that in another place we looked at, and, and if you had the handout from last week, you can take a look here. Uh, it was called God's Special Relationship with Israel in the Land of Israel, handout number 92. And so we also saw that many times Israel was called the treasured possession of God. And we also saw that in another place, see if I can find it here, yes, in Isaiah 49, 
He says, Behold, I engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Talking about the walls of Jerusalem. We also know from what we looked at last time when we met, and by the way, people asked me how our trip went, and the trip went fabulously. We had a good trip. It's about 19 hours down to central Florida, and uh, we had a chance to participate in our nephew's wedding, and they got happily married. I think it's happily. And I, I, I told them more than once, keep Jesus central in your marriage and you'll do just fine. So again, it tells us in the scripture, unless the Lord builds the house, those that build it, build it in vain. And so we know that is true. So we had a great trip, excellent weather, low 80s. And it was very nice to visit with the family. And, uh, and it finally me and my brother-in-law family all were all these years. They're from Kansas, and they all flew in for the wedding. So it was great to, to meet them as well. Back to the lesson. <laughs> I meant to mention that before we got started. But in any case, the other thing we learned from what we looked at last time was that the land is God's land. He gave it to Israel, but he still views it as his land. And so for others to take that land makes God upset, to say the least. And uh, in fact, Joel 3, 1 and 2 says this, For behold, in those days and at that time when I restored the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Again, it's his land. And so we see that's a cause for him to gather all the nations and bring them down into judgment. So given that context, we know that certainly God knows what's going on with Israel and with the surrounding enemies and so forth. So when we get to Psalm 83, and last, last time I gave you an annotated the version of Psalm 83 where I annotated it to indicate when a people was mentioned what's being referred to in Israel today or around Israel. So let me go ahead and read it. It's not that, not that long. And this was handout number 93 which you received uh, last time we met. It says, O God, do not keep silence, do not hold your peace, or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised, raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. There's that treasured possession again. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. They can almost put in there, what? From the river to the sea, right? From the river to the sea. And that's the term they're using these days to indicate we want to wipe out the Jews from the Jordan River clear to the Mediterranean Sea. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom, and I think that refers to Palestinians, the modern-day southern Jordan, and the Ismailites, uh, modern-day Saudi Arabia, Moab, Palestinians, modern-day Central Jordan, the Hagrites or 
Hagarines, modern-day Egypt, Gibal, Hezbollah, modern-day northern Lebanon, Ammon, Palestinians, modern-day northwestern Jordan, Amalek, Arabs of the modern-day Sinai Peninsula, Philistia, Philistia, I should say, modern-day Gaza, Hamas, with the inhabitants of Tyre, modern-day southern Lebanon, that would be Hezbollah, Asher, modern-day Syria, northern Iraq, also has joined them. They are strong arms of the children of Lot. And it goes on after that, but you get the idea. So if you look at the map that I gave you tonight, it lists the uh, original names. I gave you a map uh, before, and they had the more current names updated, but you have a map that shows the circle, the inner circle around Israel. Now, is the war we're looking at the Psalm 83 war? I listened to a number of prophetic teachers. Oh, hi, Margaret, you snuck in there. Good to see you. <laughs> and so, uh, and I listened to a number of prophetic teachers uh, just to see what their view was on the Psalm 83 war. And uh, I didn't have any teacher, of the teachers I looked at said, this is absolutely the Psalm 83 war. Uh, most of you know Amir uh, Sarfati, and he thought this war may have happened already when they declared themselves a nation in 1948 and shortly thereafter. And uh, I, he didn't give any justification for his view. And, uh, and so we know that some of the same areas geographically are involved with this war as we see here on the map. So how does it re relate prophetic? Let's just say this is not the Psalm 83 war. Oh, and I must also say too that there's some people like March Hitchcock and Andy Woods and so forth that believe that the Psalm 83 is what we call an imprecatory psalm. It's just a psalm about the enemies and they're expressing their feelings but it doesn't result in actual action. And so, um, Bill Sellis, which is the one that originally started to emphasize this, he's written a book called Psalm 83, and he has a, a good part of a chapter in there that goes through why he thinks that this is not just an imprecatory psalm, but it actually uh, describes a war that will go on. So most people believe, though, if you believe this is the Psalm 83 war, or leading up to it, believe this will happen right before the the war that we see in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And so what I got from most of the prophecy teachers that I uh, listened to was that they think that this is prophetic in the sense that it's changing the landscape and it's making the Gog-Magog war, the invasion of Russia into Israel, a lot more likely to happen. Now why is that? Well, as we mentioned before, when Ezekiel wrote this, remember he was in Babylon. And when he wrote this, it was around five, well, the last, he went to Babylon 597 B.C. That's Nebuchadnezzar's second invasion of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar being the king of Babylon. The last invasion was in 586. And they took the last number of exiles 
to Babylon. So he wrote this probably around 586, somewhere about there. Now, realize that Babylon was conquered by Persia. Remember that Cyrus, the Persian king, allowed Israel to go back and rebuild their temple. And Cyrus's name was actually in Isaiah 45 and 44, predicted that he would be the one to come on the scene and allow them to go back and rebuild the city and the temple. What's neat about that is that that was written 150 years before he was born. And, he was, and it says right there in the scripture, I'm calling you by name even though you don't know me. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and sure enough, Cyrus comes on the scene. And I wouldn't doubt if Daniel didn't show him the prophecy. And sure enough, he let him go back and rebuild under Zerubbabel. Approximately about 50,000 Jews went back at that time. I'm not sure how many were actually still in Babylon, but I'm sure that was a minority amount compared to how many were still in Babylon. They decided to stay. So Persia, as we talked about, is Iran. Persia, the ancient name, but the current name is Iran. When Esther took place and Haman tried to destroy the Jews, that was under a Persian king. And the Persian king stepped in to save the Jews. So again, friendly toward the Jews. However, we see, we saw that in 1979, so when, the, when Ezekiel wrote this, it didn't make much sense that Persia would be invading Israel because Persia was friendly. However, in 1979, the Shah of Iran was deposed and replaced with Islamic revolution under Ayatollah. So then it radically changed and went from pro-Israel to opposing Israel. And so we see that today. We see Iran, it's supposed they're funding all these faction groups, these terrorists to attack Israel and have Israel surrounded. The question remains whether there will be more. The Houthis and Yemen have fired rockets, but they're 500 miles away. So they're on the outskirts. Hezbollah has fired some rockets, but they're afraid, I think at this point, to pull the trigger yet because Israel said, if you get involved with this war, we're gonna come right into Lebanon and take care of you too. But we don't know yet if that's going to happen or not. The dangerous thing with Hezbollah is that they have better rockets. They're smart rockets, they're more accurate than what Hamas is using. So we see that Iran is in place to invade Israel, no question about it. And we talked about Russia. Now Russia, when this was written, you wouldn't think Russia would be involved because Russia was a Russian Orthodox Christian nation. 
However, in a, around 1000 AD, there was a revolution, a communist revolution. And so that country changed by being, at least not, maybe if they weren't pro-Israel, they weren't opposed to Israel, to where there was persecution with the communist revolution. And a lot of the Jews that are in Israel today are from Russia. In fact, one of the uh, young men that I worked with over the years was a Messianic Jew and he, his family was from Russia. And then when it comes to Turkey, we have several names in the prophecy to Ezekiel that point to Turkey. And you're saying, well, how does that work? Because Turkey is a NATO nation. They're friendly towards the West. Oh, and by the way, I forgot to mention that Putin came out in public, Russia, and said he supported Hamas. He supports the Palestinians against Israel. One reason for that is that Iran is supplying Russia with weapons so they can have this war in Ukraine. Then it comes to Turkey, and Erdogan is the, the president, got reelected, and he is a pretty radical Islamist. He has come out to say he supports Hamas, supports the Palestinians, and opposes Israel. Said it publicly. We know that the three countries have had meetings together, the heads of the three. Putin, Erdogan, and whoever the head is of Iran. Ayatollah. And so, in fact, I didn't print it, but I have a picture of all three of them together, almost arm in arm. So all the players that we see are lined up properly. And this has made it very explicit because of this war, which side they're on. It's very clear which side Turkey's on. It's very clear which side Russia's on. If there was any doubt before. We're also saying anti-Semitism. We're seeing people expressing, if you're looking at all the marches that we're seeing outside our capital, across the country, in Europe. We're seeing anti-Semitism poke its ugly head back up again. In fact, some uh, I've heard speaking from the Jewish standpoint say it's almost like the conditions before Hitler arrived on the scene. College students are afraid to walk across campuses because of anti-Semitic types of rhetoric and actions. And so this is the kind of climate that the Antichrist will also come into. He'll feign a, an agreement with Israel, but we see that he turns right in the middle of the tribulation and persecutes them. But we would expect this in the end times. Why? Satan hates Israel. Satan hates Israel. 
We talked about this before. In fact, we had a handout. It was, I can give you the number of it here. Let me get, let me get to it. I think I pulled that handout so I could look at it. It's number 63, and it's called Satan Tries to Stop God's Plan. So it's number 63. I still have more copies out there, and I'll just read off if you want a copy and get another one. But you, you probably had this in your notes. And it lays out eight attempts where Satan has tried to stop God's plan. And this comes from Andy Woods from Sugarland Bible Church, and I modified it a little bit. First of all, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother. Abel was supposed to be the one, and, and now it turns out that now the messianic line goes through Seth. The sons of God intermarrying, Genesis 6, where we see evil angels intermarrying with the daughters of men, trying to taint the bloodline. And as a result, God said, there will be a flood. And only those that are going to survive would be Noah and his family. We see Pharaoh persecuting Israel and trying to destroy Israel. Remember, Pharaoh said, kill all the male children that are born. And then when they, he let them go, the army went after Israel to try to kill them. Or to bring them back, possibly, but they had blood in their eyes, that's for sure. That was another attempt. And then number four, Joash is protected from Athaliah. She tried to kill the whole royal family and they hid the little baby until he was old enough to take charge, but she almost, almost wiped out the royal line. Came down <clears throat> to one child. And then Haman persecuting, and then we talked about Esther. And the, the Feast of Purim is celebrated every year because that uh, the Jews were spared. And so that was another attempt to destroy the Jews. And then Antiochus Epiphanes persecutes the Jews. And this is where Hanukkah, Hanukkah comes from with the Feast of Lights. This took place about 165 or so B.C. He was a... He was a, a Called So uh, what's that? <laughs> so anyway, anyways, he, he hated Israel. He also was a precursor to what would happen, what's going to happen in the future with Antichrist. And he went into the temple, sacrificed a sow, and put up an image, I think, of a Zeus. And so we're going to see something very similar with the Antichrist. It was kind of a type of what would happen in the future. But he also tried to destroy the Jews as well. And then we had Herod persecuting Christ, trying to kill all the babies of a certain age to try to kill the Messiah. And of course, uh, we read in there that where Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt, until Herod died. And then we're going to see in the last times in Revelation 12 where when the Antichrist turns, he's going to pursue Israel and try to kill the nation of Israel. And Israel flees to the wilderness. 
So it's not surprising we see a Satan-induced attack on Israel. When, when you look at the description of the evil types of actions Hamas took, there's no doubt that it has to be satanically induced to do those types of atro atrocities. This was similar when the church was established. I don't know if you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It describes some of the atrocities that were carried out against the Christians in the early church. And they have to be satanically inspired. I could only read through the book one time. It was so, so terrible. Claude Fox's Book of Martyrs is still published today. And it's, uh, it's really a God, another attempt by Satan to destroy Christians. So it's not surprising we see this, and I don't have any doubt about that. Now, one other factor that I learned about, and I think I was aware of this, but I came across was that I learned from that once, once an Islamic country or uh, Islamic people has a territory, they believe that from then on it's always theirs. So it doesn't make any difference who was there before and who has claim to it. If they're there and they put down any roots, then it's theirs forever on. And that's also a view that affects what's going on over there currently. So is this a prophetic war that's going on there? Most prophecy teachers think yes. Is it Psalm 83 war? Not necessarily. But it is moving things closer to the Gog and Magog war. That's in Ezekiel 38 and 39. The players are lining up more clearly and there's more hostility towards Israel by these players. Is it going to get better? I don't think so. Now, we have to ask the next question is, well, when will this war take place from what we talked about? The Ezekiel 38 and 39 war. Well, we talked about this. And I listened, again, I listened to some prophecy teachers to see what their view was. And somebody, you know, uh, I, anyone I listen to, I respect. I don't listen to prophecy teachers that are not reading the scriptures proper, are using good interpretation principles. And so it boils down. The, the two major views of when this war occurs is either before the tribulation or right at the beginning of the tribulation. Now, I, I purpose, I believe that this is the scenario, and I think Ron Rhodes would, would agree with my view, and I think it's this. I believe that what will happen is the next thing on the agenda is the rapture. The rapture can occur at any point in time. We believe that the rapture is imminent. That means it can happen the next second, or it might be in the next month, it could be the next year, it could be a couple of years. We don't know, but we know there's nothing that we read in prophecy that says that Jesus can't come at any time as soon as the Father directs him, go get my children. <laughs> he can come. And it tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4 
it says that that Christ will come back and he'll bring with him those that have fallen asleep. And, and, and Paul writes, he says, for we received a word from the Lord that we who are alive and are left until the Lord returns will not precede those that have already fallen asleep. For Christ will descend from heaven with a shout of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And it says, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then it says, then we who are alive and who are left, will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet Christ in the air. And so we will ever be with them. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So the next thing in the agenda is that he's going to come back and we're going to be caught up, the dead in Christ first and then those who are alive, to meet him in the clouds. I believe when that happens, the United States will be in such chaos that this will no longer be a superpower. Things will be in such disarray and it will affect the United States more than almost any other nation because we have more Christians here. Those that truly know Christ, that accept him, accepted him as their personal savior, have asked him to come into their life. And what will happen is that in the United States there won't be any true believers. Can you imagine what kind of evil and what, care, and what will be going on in addition to those in leadership positions that were Christians who no longer will be here and the chaos that will occur. I believe when this occurs, Russia says there's no protector for Israel anymore. Iran says the great Satan is gone. Turkey says, fooey with that NATO stuff. And we see an invasion of Israel. And God tells us that when that happens, because there's no protector for Israel in the United States, that God will intervene himself. And it tells us that, and we're going to look at this yet tonight, I'm just giving an overview, that God intervenes in the armies that are on the mountains of Israel are all destroyed. Five-sixths of the army, the one-sixth survive. If you look at the King James Version of that passage there. And as a result, Europe is not uh, affected. In fact, there's not much real Christianity in Europe. <laughs> They've gone the way of, of disbelief and so there's going to be a, a kingdom, the revived R Roman kingdom, coming out of Europe. And eventually a man we call the beast or antichrist will rise to power. And the world will be looking for someone to put things back in order after all this happens. And he'll seize the moment. 
And since it all started in Israel, and that's the focus, he'll make an agreement with Israel, a peace agreement, guaranteeing them that they will be able to build their temple finally. You won't have the Islamic opposition because their army's been decimated. You won't have Russia being a superpower because their army's been decimated. And so he'll consolidate power and rule. And he will allow Israel to build for three and a half years. And then we know what happens in the middle of the tribulation, don't we? He declares himself to be God. And he demands worldwide worship. And to help pull it off, he controls the world economic system. And you cannot buy or sell without his mark. And persecution has already started in the first three and a half years because a false church comes on the scene. A syncretic that is a mixture of different religions, probably headquartered in Rome. And they demand worship and the Antichrist works with this false religion to gain power. Kind of like the popes did with the state in, in ancient times. And it says there in, in Revelation 17 that the church is filled with the blood of the saints that there'll be severe persecution, not from the Antichrist, but from this false church. But when the Antichrist declares himself to be God, he turns on this church, the false church, and destroys it. So he is the only authority. We see in the middle of the tribulation that Israel has to flee for their lives. Because the Antichrist is possessed by Satan, it tells us right in the scripture. And he has satanic power. It says the false prophet, which is his buddy, can do miracles, to do miraculous works under the power of Satan. And so that brings us to the end of the tribulation and make a long story short, Christ returns. Wipes out the opposition and sets up his kingdom. Where Israel have a priority. Why? Because God promised all these promises to the nation of Israel. They'd never been fulfilled yet. So during the, during the millennium, they will be fulfilled. After a thousand years, Satan has put the bombless pit or the abyss for a thousand years. And after a thousand years, he's released. And people have a choice, follow Satan or follow Christ. And a lot determined to follow Satan. One last rebellion, and it ushers in eternity where God is always going to be with us. And we're going to rule with Christ. Well, that's going back to the original war we're talking about here. I think this is prophetic in the sense that it sets the conditions right for what will happen next. 
Now, if we're seeing this happen now, the rapture can't be that far away, folks. It can happen anytime. Well, let me stop there with that, and let me go back to chapter 15. But first of all, do you have any questions? Yes, go ahead. Fred? Yes, that God calls Cyrus by name. That's in Isaiah 45, verse 1. Well, let me go ahead. I can read it for you. Hold on. I think I can read the small print in this Bible. I'll just go ahead and use this Bible here. Let me go there. It's pretty miraculous. So the question is, where is the talk about Cyrus in Isaiah? If you go to, uh, I'll start it in chapter, right, right before that, the end of chapter 44. Okay. Okay. Let me start and says, uh, you know what, I'm gonna get my tablet. This, the lights in here are just such that they're kind of, uh, they're not white, and it's so hard for me to read when they're that way with small print. So let me go back to my tablet here. Yeah, it's in 45, but I'm gonna start in 44. Right there. Let, let me go there. Get my tablet open here so I can, I can read on this, this helps. Take me just a second to get there on my tablet here. I'm just gonna have to bring a Bible with bigger print. That's what I'm gonna have to end up doing. When I'm at home, I usually uh, I usually use my tablet when I'm looking at studying the Bible. One second. This tablet is just slow, so let me go ahead and read from the from my Bible here. So if you go up just a few verses, it says, um, let me start at verse 14, or 34, it looks like, 24. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who, who, foil, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools uh, diviners. 
who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of the servants and fulfills the predictions of the messengers, who says to Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Uh, the towns of Judah, they shall be built. Now their ruins, I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry and I will dry up your streams. Who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will save Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Then it goes on. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him, so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze. I will give you the treasures of darkness, uh, treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord the God of Israel who summons you by name for the sake of my of Jacob my servant of Israel my chosen I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor though you do not acknowledge me I am the Lord and there is no other apart from me there is no God I will strengthen you though you have not acknowledged me so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And it goes on. But notice he says there that you're my servant and this is what you're going to do. And I call you by name, but you don't know me. Pretty fantastic, isn't it? There's another prophecy over in 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 13, where it talks about a reformer will come by the name of Josiah, and he will reform Israel. That was pretty cool because it was 300 years before he was born. What is that, Jim? Yeah, I think it's in 1 Kings 13. Okay, thank you. Yeah. That's pretty fantastic. That's why this book is totally different than any other book. This is the only book that's been written that has prophecies in it. A guy by the name of Barton Payne wrote a book called the Encyclopedia Biblical Prophecy. It's what the name of it. And he counted there were already 1,800 specific prophecies in the Bible. And it's estimated that over half of these have been fulfilled literally already. And you won't find any other book that has specific prophecies in it. No religion, no anything. And it's, we, we, we used this verse before in Amos 3, verse 7. It says that God reveals his, God won't do anything unless he reveals his secrets to the prophets. And so he's given us a little peek underneath the curtain and what he's communicated to his prophets. And we see that in Isaiah. A lot we know about the kingdom is, or about the kingdom on earth is in Isaiah. Uh, messianic prophecies there. Well, I'm going to break for about 10 minutes, and then we come back, be a perfect place to start chapter 
15. We already got started on chapter 15, by the way. So we're going to go back through chapter 15 in the book, and we're going to look at the things that he brings up around Rhodes as a final review and where these things are located. I hope to get through, we'll see how far we get tonight, but my thinking is that uh, we'll probably get close to starting 17. There's only 17, 18, and 19 in the book. And I'm going to start next time, bring some of the these books next time so you can start looking through them. So, and I'll, I'll keep on bringing them for, uh, you know, each time. So again, remember that there's no charge on these. We bought enough for the class. And so, I didn't want you to misplace them though. So I thought maybe during the, uh, during Christmas you might have a little time to look into them. Maybe less time, I don't know. So I'll, I'll start bringing those next time we get together. So let's go ahead and break for about 10 minutes, about 20 of or so. We'll go ahead and start class again. <laughs>